Whether you have a skin interest, a skin query, a skin trauma, or skin disease, I warmly welcome you to Heal Thy Skin, a podcast brought to you by Derm Health Co. I'm Marnie, dermal clinician, dermoscopist, and your podcast host. Skin is deeper than beauty, and our mission is to build the largest platform of specialized practitioners focused on skin health and skin empowerment. Join me each week where we go deep into the skin and beyond to hear stories and education from leading practitioners on a journey of skin health. Welcome to the Heal Thy Skin podcast. I'm Marnie, your host, and today I'm speaking with Dr. Michelle Squire, a PhD qualified scientist, skin educator, and founder of Curate, a personalized skincare consultancy. Michelle has been researching and consulting on skincare science for over 17 years, and she shares how her journey into cosmetic science inspired her to start Curate, why she chose not to start her own skincare line, and the importance of formulations. I started by asking Dr. Squire what she thought was the biggest misconception about skincare. The biggest misconception is that more is better and stronger is better. That seems to be the basis of most skincare marketing, that for something to produce results, you know, the holy grail is that it needs to produce results overnight with no downtime. And, you know, you're going to wake up the next morning and have this kind of baby skin and this kind of thing. That's not the case. In reality, skincare, it's actually really quite boring. It's like eating properly. It's like exercising the right skincare with the right evidence in an effective range. You know, it's just science ingredients in formulations have an effective range of concentrations that they work within. And it's just about knowing what those are or or understanding what those are and applying those to your skin in a consistent manner, day after day, night after night, until things happen. And pushing the limits of tolerance of your skin with more and more and more products, getting onto this kind of hamster wheel of constantly changing products because things aren't producing what you were led to believe they would produce, it creates drama for your skin. And you can end up with skin barrier issues that take years to fix. So I think, you know, that's probably a lot of misconceptions <laughs> rolled into one, but it's this more is better and stronger is better misconception. And I, that underpins sales. So I get where it comes from, but it's mm. incorrect. Absolutely. And even the fact that people constantly change products because it might not be working. I wonder if it's because perhaps the marketing has led them to believe that it should create results that is actually unachievable. I think, you know, I guess in terms of marketing, I like to believe I'm a fairly positive person, even though I can get a bit angsty when it comes to telling people about the science. I do like to come from a place of yes. And I think that I don't think companies set out to purposely mislead clients, but I think, again, there's that effective range of concentrations that work or don't work. But also what's right for one person's skin is not going to be right for everybody's skin. And so I like to practice what I call evidence-based skincare choices versus hearsay-based skincare choices. And by hearsay, I mean what you read in the Facebook group or what your friend's using, what you read on your social channels, which of course, you know, there's an algorithm to direct you in that direction. So bear that in mind. I think it's a consumer perception that's wrong, not so much the skincare companies. I don't think they're out to purposely mislead people. Interesting. So Mm. 
Tell us where did your journey of skincare begin? Look, first and foremost, like everybody else, I'm a skincare consumer. And I probably consume a lot more skincare than the average person because I'm constantly buying stuff and looking at it and trying it and what have you. But I started to realise a long time ago when my science career first began that there's a lot of products and the speed with which products are coming to market now has increased in that time. I mean, I'm talking kind of 16, 17 years ago, but the speed with which products are now coming to market is much greater. There's much greater demand from consumers for newness and So as a consumer way back then, I started to realise that, you know, I was really confused. There was just a level of confusion that I couldn't quite see my way through. And I was confused as to what works versus what says it works, pseudoscience versus actual science. And as somebody who's trained in the rigour of the scientific method, so the rigour of research, which is actually a very detailed and rigorous process, I just started to look at what was the research underpinning these things and what's good research versus bad research, because there's a lot of that as well. And I started to understand that difference between what ingredients work and what ingredients don't work. So and that's kind of where it all started. And as part of that process, I realised that I wasn't the only person who was feeling that. That was a fairly widely held notion that people were really generally confused. And unless they had a trusted advisor to tell them the difference, and also there's the qualifications of those people as to what they know and don't know, that everybody was really in the dark. Mm. That there was a place for somebody to provide that kind of unbiased advice from a scientific perspective to help them out. Yeah, absolutely. And as far as consumers go, especially if we can be what's called, I guess, an uneducated consumer, we can be like a kid in a candy store, not really Mm. knowing that Mm. we're consuming all these things that are just going to actually wreak havoc on our skin. And that's the difference. You know, I think back when I first started this, the products were fairly benign and it wasn't that easy to actually wreak havoc on your skin either. So there weren't the number of products and really, you know, the products weren't at the kind of increasingly strong concentrations of things that that there are now. And there also wasn't this focus on adding up 20 different things and putting them all on your skin at the same time. So it was a different world back then when I first started. Thank goodness I grew with it because if I was starting now, it would be to try and dig back into parts of some of this research would be really quite, quite onerous. So tell us about Curate and you've kind of explained what led you to start it, but tell us about the beginnings and and where it is now. Well, so I launched just over a year ago. So I was working, so I kind of continued through my scientific career, working as an academic and as a scientist and just started to realise that with all the newness coming to market, that things were becoming quite crucial for people and people were spending a lot of money in that candy store And not only not getting results, which is kind of one thing, but also damaging their skin, which was the other thing. And I just thought the time had come to just start curate and start providing that advice for people and actually getting myself out there as somebody who is independent, an objective source of advice. I like to call myself an evidence-based skincare communicator as opposed to a science communicator. Yeah, I just realised it was time for that to happen. And so far, a year down the track, that's been borne out. People do want that. So tell us more about what Curate offers. So currently the service involves having a consult with me either one-on-one in my clinic in Brisbane or I also do clinics in several of the capital cities in normal circumstances around Australia. So you come to see me for a consult. Prior to seeing me, 
I'll have a, I'll ask you to send me the skincare that you're currently using and have a look at that. I'll dig into all of that and look at the formulations of those. When I see you, we'll talk about your skin, your general health, because it's a, you know, skin really responds to a lot of lifestyle factors and internal health factors. And we'll tease all of that out, figure out what's going on, find out what the client wants, and then put together something that's designed just for that person moving forwards. And I also offer a membership so that people can continue to work with me because obviously just changing someone's skincare routine once may not be the answer. Skin's a kind of, it's a biological system. It changes in response to how you treat it. So yeah, so we can work together until the client is at the point where they're really happy. Fantastic. So mm. provide this ongoing consultation and support and then recommendation of products, but you're not recommending your own products. So with, you know, 17 mm. years of experience and science background, why not just formulate your own skincare? Look, because there's so much skincare out there. I just, I don't want to be another voice selling product. I want to be a voice and objective where, you know, there's so much good stuff out there. I just don't see the need for more skincare. We're already overloaded. I don't need to contribute to that. And when there's good stuff to choose from, it's just a matter of knowing from a kind of global array of products which things are going to work for which people. In answer, when I said what Curate's currently doing, what I do have launching in a couple of weeks, and the service is already running, but the website's just a little bit behind the process, is what I'm launching is a prescription skincare service. So that's helping people to access medical skincare that they would ordinarily require, well, they still require a prescription for, but it's you know stuff that you would ordinarily go to your GP for. And there's an incredible level of evidence supporting. These are therapeutic goods. These are skin medicines, if you like, that a lot of people don't know about. So I don't really classify that as skincare, but it will be helping people to access an online team of experienced aesthetic doctors to be able to incorporate those kind of products into their skin as well, into their routine as well. That is fantastic because if I go to my GP and ask for something therapeutic mm. for my skin, because, you know, with my background, I'm looking at a specific thing and I'm thinking, mm. yes, this is what my skin needs right now. Mm. My GP just looks at me blankly, like what for? Mm. So that just makes so much sense to be able to have a consultation team that can yeah. provide this service. And it's, it's all online. So the process is that you fill out a very detailed online questionnaire about your health history and your skin history and your medical history. And then have the team of doctors will have a look at that. And they're specialists too, you know, they're specialists in the skincare field. Then you book a 15 minute e-consult, like a, a telehealth consult that's all cure and private. And they'll work through all of that with you and then write a prescription. The prescription gets sent off to our skincare lab, skincare pharmacy, they make it and deliver it to you. Fantastic. So it's compounded yeah. to the specific. Yep. We can change the, you know, depending on people's allergies. For example, if you want prescription vitamin A, or retinoic acid, tretinoin, for example, we can add something like niacinamide to it to increase its, you know, in terms of phasing it into your skin, into your skincare routine and phasing it, phasing it into that kind of adjustment period when you start a vitamin A, it can make that a little bit easier. We can leave stuff out, add stuff in, do different concentrations, all kinds of stuff. So how fantastic. We actually spoke to Dr. Naveen Somia, who's the chair of the Australasian Plastic Surgery Association about skincare. And one of his, I guess, predictions was that we are going to see more of these boutique customized and compounded skincare. Mm -hmm. And here we are speaking about that today. So Mm -hmm. 
yeah. And look, I think my mantra has always been keeping it simple. This, this, you know, the less you do of the right things, the better the outcome will be. And so using some of these products that have an incredible level of safety data behind it, and I'm talking like when you look at vitamin A, I'm talking about 30 years plus of therapeutic data and proper randomised controlled trials. So, you know, the level of evidence is the gold standard to substantiate the claims for what they can do for your skin. So I think, you know, being able to incorporate those in a very managed, safe way will get results that people are after. And we can compound it into a night cream and do stuff so that you can have multiple things all compounded into one cream. Yeah, wow. And I think that makes life easy for people too. So in regards to the products that I guess are already made up, what do you look for when introducing a new product to the range of those that you offer to your clientele? Oh, you know, evidence. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) That's pretty much it. So my market are typically older women, so kind of 39 plus. I don't say older, I say older, more mature women, 39 plus. And as you age, things start to happen just in normal biological circumstances. And with chronological ageing, things start to happen to your skin barrier. So the structural integrity of it starts to decrease. And so I look for things just primarily, I really aim for fragrance-free because in that particular age group, I'm not anti-fragrance, but in that particular age group, fragrance can be a problem because they'll be starting to experience skin barrier issues. So even if they've used fragrance products in their youth, they may start to become more sensitive to those. I try and look for fragrance-free, minimal ingredients lists, you know, less chance of causing problems. But for the companies who provide them to be able to demonstrate the evidence behind their products. And these could be cosmetics. I'm not talking about therapeutic goods. You know, the the bar for scientific evidence for cosmetics versus the types of medical skincare that I was talking about previously, it's a completely different standard of scientific evidence that's required. Safety evidence, very similar, but scientific evidence, vastly different. But there's quite a few companies who actually take great pains to produce that kind of that kind of science and I naturally err towards those so many products will tout that they contain certain ingredients doesn't matter how far up they are on the ingredients list it might be a very small percentage mm. can you explain how skincare is formulated oh my goodness and, you know the range of quality when it comes yeah, to the actual sure. end result look I'm not a cosmetic formulator I'm not a chemist I'm a biologist so I should get that out right up front so in terms of the process by which things are formulated and what mixes with what to produce a particular feel on the skin, I'm not your person, which is why I actually try a lot of stuff because I like to understand from a look and feel perspective and a service perspective and a packaging perspective and all of that kind of stuff, what people will be getting if I recommend those products. But in terms of those ingredients lists, it's on the face of it, the average consumer can look at those and say, okay, so most of the ingredients in this product are the first five or six listed ingredients because they're listed in order of concentration in the container, in the packaging. So if the thing that you're looking for in very general terms 
is not listed in those first five or six ingredients, you want to dig a little bit further and perhaps email the companies and say, look, you've said this is a retinol serum. Can you give me the percentage of retinol in it? It's just a flag. You know, there's things you can do. You can encapsulate retinol. You can add penetration enhancers. You can do all kinds of stuff. And companies do do that quite legitimately. And so that's where things start to get a bit confusing for clients, for consumers. But in general terms, if you are looking, if you walk into, let's say, a pharmacy, pull something off the counter, it says on the front that it's a retinol serum, you turn it over and retinol is the last ingredient, then you want to be asking questions. And price is not an indicator of the quality of things. There are some very, very, very good, very, very well-priced products that aren't expensive and that you don't need to be spending a lot of money on. Cleansers is a prime example of that. Cleansers need to cleanse the skin. They're not on your face for long enough to really do anything fancy. You don't need to be spending $70, $80 plus on a cleanser. Hallelujah. Yeah. <laughs> you just don't need to. It's going down the sink, going down the drain. You know, if you've got acne-prone skin, there's a little bit of evidence that using salicylic acid washes can help. But in general terms, a really good basic cleanser and a really good basic moisturiser at either end to kind of bookend your routine, you don't have to be spending a lot of money on those. And sunscreen, likewise. In fact, the more money you spend on sunscreen, the less likely you are to use the right amount of it. Yeah, it's so true. My mum mm. is a culprit of this where she's gone out and bought sunscreens that, you know, are $80 or something and mm. she's using a P amount. And I'm like, yeah. what's the point? Exactly. You know, just find a sun. Look, there's so many sunscreens out there. Find one, find a dedicated primary sunscreen that you like. And it, look, it's a trial and error process in, in terms of the texture and how it plays with your makeup and plays with your skincare and all that kind of jazz. But, you know, and then slather that on. Mm, generously neck to knee literally yeah be yeah. generous yeah but also i mean i guess i should probably don't get me started on sunscreen we'll be recording for about five hours <laughs> but the other thing to remember with sunscreen is that it's not your primary sun protection mechanism it's because of that issue of people only applying a pea size amount because of the fact that some sunscreens contain uh, UV filters that degrade in the sun. Most people don't apply enough of it. They don't reapply. It's just prone. It's very error prone. Your best sunscreen is clothing, staying out of the sun when the UV index is three or above, wearing hats, wearing sunglasses, all that kind of stuff. That's much more reliable for sun protection than sunscreen. That's not, I'm not saying don't wear sunscreen. You still need your sunscreen, but you know, don't rely on it as your, you know, your suit of armor. Yeah, it's not yeah. your first line of defense. No. Yeah, let's dig a little deeper into Ooh, some of the okay. common skincare ingredients. So, All right. Yeah, maybe let's. I'm just going to let you roll with this one. I, uh, I talk a lot. No, that's, that's what we want. We want as much information as possible. So hand Ooh, it over. There's lots of that. <laughs> All right. So in terms of, look, again, I don't think, in terms of digging into skincare ingredients, I don't necessarily think that companies are out to mislead people. But it's a case of buyer beware and understanding that, you know, there's just, this facts matter. I guess, that's the, I guess that's what I'm trying to say. Facts matter and science matters. And there's varying forms of things that will do, that will have better results versus other things on your skin. So a prime example of that is something like vitamin C, which is, 
currently, vitamin C and vitamin A are currently having a moment in the sun, and quite rightly so. They're exceptional skincare ingredients. When you look at the science behind vitamin C, just as an example, there are, I don't know, 10 different versions plus of vitamin C that you can buy on the market. I'm not talking about products. There's thousands of products, but there's the bioactive form of vitamin C. So that's the form that actually works in your skin, for want of a better term. And that's L-ascorbic acid. Then there are probably nine or 10 other derivatives of vitamin C, vitamin C esters. And they are formulated. They've primarily come to market because the bioactive form of vitamin C, it's unstable. It's an antioxidant. It's a water-soluble ingredient. It reacts with water in the packaging when it's sitting on the shelf. And it oxidizes very quickly, particularly when you start to expose it to air. So when you open your product, it can go off quite quickly unless it's packaged correctly and stored correctly. So as a result of that, all of these vitamin C esters have come to market and they're generally oil soluble and they're much more stable. However, when you look at the science underpinning these things, there's varying levels of studies that have been done on these vitamin C esters versus L-ascorbic acid itself. Some of them have been done in animals, some of them have been done in cells, you know, petri dish studies, cells in a dish in a lab. And then there's just the ordinary issue that I deal with, which is, is there enough scientific evidence to tell us what the effective concentration is that works actually in skin and at what pH? So to actually penetrate skin. So it's totally confusing because this is an example where new is not necessarily better. The newer ones have essentially a lot less research underpinning them and a lot less quality research in terms of human studies than poor old L-ascorbic acid that gets a really bad rap because it goes off within six months of opening it. You know, vitamin C is an absolute, <laughs> it's a nightmare right now because people will kind of cherry pick what they think of vitamin. You know, they understand all of these things that vitamin C can do. And in actual fact, a lot of the information out there in the kind of social media verse is about L-ascorbic acid but that does not necessarily apply to all of those different derivatives. So that's where I come in. Being able to say to people, look, here's where this particular version of vitamin C sits in that hierarchy of what it will do for your skin. Does it actually penetrate? Does, is there science that tells us it penetrates into skin? Well, no, there isn't. Is there science that tells us that it will actually fade your, your pigmentation marks? Yes, there is, but it's in cells in a dish, not in actual skin or in humans. So, you know, it's, that's the level at which I look at things. So, you know, vitamin C is a bit of a minefield at the moment because of all of these new derivatives on the market. Vitamin A, it's another hero ingredient, quite rightly so. Retinoic acid, which is the uh, medical form and the bioactive form of vitamin A, is a spectacular ingredient in terms of anti-aging in particular. I hate that term anti-aging. If you can, can you come up with a better term? I can't. <laughs> I call everything I do future-proofing, but it doesn't, I don't know, anti-aging... Aging Slow is such a aging. Um, yeah, I don't even, I don't know. Everything always sounds a bit, I can't, I, I need to come negative. up with something. So, yeah, I need to come up with something clever. We're not anti-aging. Um, aging brings maturity and a sense right? of feeling great in yourself. Exactly. So much goodness. Yes, I'm much and happier now in my 30s than I was in my early 20s. 100%. Well, I'm 51, just about to turn 51 next month. I'm hoping I can actually get out of the house to party, but you know, who knows? <laughs> Who knows, might be, you know, partying, partying of one. 
but uh, yeah, there's just so much fabulous stuff that happens with aging. You don't want anti-aging. You want you actually want some lines and wrinkles because you own them and they look great. I think so. Yeah, I'm not anti-aging at all. But anyway, that's where I digress. So yes, there's so much great evidence about retinoic acid as an ingredient to treat aging-related concerns. How's that? That's a bit better. But not as much in terms of the over-the-counter version of vitamin A, which is retinol, because retinol needs to be converted to retinoic acid in your skin in a multi-step process that's driven by skin enzymes, so that the amount of retinol that's converted to the active form is quite small. So I think people, you know, there's, there's often a bit of a push-pull between the things that people hear from others who may be using more active versions of vitamin A and vitamin C versus what they're actually using without that level of understanding that perhaps they're using something different. So, so yes, again, it's a kind of consumer beware situation and being able to ask questions and find the best version of that for you. I could go on. Sunscreen? <laughs> yeah, I think even just with vitamin A, there's this misconception that vitamin A is going to make your skin really sensitized and, you know, the whole vitamin A reaction yeah. and, yeah. and the unborn baby. There's a lot of mm -hmm. scaremongering around vitamin A, which is really interesting because the evidence suggests that vitamin A is fantastic, not only for aging concerns, but also things mm -hmm. like rosacea and right. scarring and, and things yep. like that. Yep. So, mm -hmm. Yeah, I think it's important to understand that there are multiple variations of any one ingredient. Yeah, and I think that the issue with, say, the prescription versions of vitamin A, that, you know, the reason it gets sometimes a bad rap with people in terms of the skin sensitization story in particular, the story I hear a lot is that people go to the GP, all credit to GPs, you know, they do an unbelievable job, but they go to the GP and say, you know, look, I'd like to start you know, I'm getting older, I'd like to start this, that and the other. And so, you know, they kind of written a script, they go off and they get that, you know, it comes with instructions, whether they follow those or not, who knows, but they go in hard. They don't really quite understand that it's a phase in process that often involves a bit of skin adjustment. So, you know, it actually can take several months to get to using a prescription product like vitamin A correctly or, you know, regularly. And so a lot of people I see say, oh, yes, I used that before. And, you know, I, I went home and I put it on and I put it on every night and my face fell off and I'm, I'm allergic to it. Mm -hmm. I, I have a reaction to it. And without really understanding just what an incredible product it is yeah. and that actually that doesn't have to be the case. And also when you use it, when you kind of, I like to work with people to get their skin healthy, get a great routine in place, get regular sunscreen use happening. And then we add in those kind of things. And I know most consumers do it the opposite way around because they're looking for that holy grail. They think these active type of things are going to make everything much better. So I'm going to go in hard with those and just it all blows up in their face. Exactly. Really like my mum like will use a pea-sized amount of sunscreen, but she would slather on something like vitamin A like mm. it's you know, oh. icing on a cake. <laughs> <laughs> and then her face will fall off. Yes. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Uh, look, it's, I hear it a lot. You know, the, the horror stories that people have told me with vitamin A, whereas in actual fact, it's an extraordinarily safe, well-tolerated ingredient when it's used 
correctly. Look, the issue with just kind of circling back to that issue of babies, there really is a dearth of evidence in relation to pregnancy and breastfeeding and the use of retinoic acid and retinols. And that's because nobody wants to do that research for obvious reasons. <laughs> so it's really out of an abundance of caution that people are advised not to use vitamin A whilst pregnant or breastfeeding or trying to become pregnant. And nobody wants to test that. Absolutely. So that's something we support as well. Yeah. So, so yeah, it's really just a, it's an abundance of caution. So what are some of the other kind of most common ingredients that you would recommend prescribe that might not be so much in the media? Some of the, the unsung heroes. Look, the biggest unsung hero for me, other than sunscreen, but I'm warning you, don't get me started, is, well, I mean, let's just touch on sunscreen because I can't not. Sunscreen is an unsung hero in terms of being used as a beauty product. Most people will come to see me and tell me that, oh yes, I use sunscreen. They usually don't use enough like your mum, but they also think of sunscreen as a product that you use when you're in the sun. And to be fair, I get why that is because every bit of advertising you see about sunscreen has a picture of somebody at the beach smearing sunscreen on themselves. So I get why in consumers' minds, that's something you do when you go outside. It's to do with the sun and all that kind of jazz. What people don't realise and why it's a bit of an unsung hero is that that's not... But those days that you go to the beach or go to soccer on Saturday morning with the kids and those kind of things, that's not where you're exposed to enough sun to burn or get a sunburn. That's not the sun that ages you. It's the daily cumulative exposure to UVB and UVA. That's what we call sub-erythemal, so sub-redness, below the level that causes a sunburn. That's the stuff over time that causes, that is responsible for many, many of the signs of ageing in people's skin. So I guess from a, if you want to talk about a kind of marketing misconception, that's probably the primary one. And it is a hugely unsung hero as a beauty product. And for that reason, I really, that's starting to change. I think that dialogue is starting to change with people like the, you know, groups like the Call Time on Melanoma people and products marketed, sunscreen products marketed as beauty products like uh, the ultraviolet sunscreens. But really, it's very much an unsung hero and something that, you know, I spend a lot of time with clients getting their sun protection right because there's almost no point if you are going to continue, particularly in Australia and certainly some parts of Australia more than others, you know, the northern parts of Australia in particular, uh, there's almost no point adding in anything else, anything fancy in your skincare routine without sunscreen because you really, you won't get ahead. So important. And I just had a thought in regards to if there is anyone that does marketing for sunscreen companies, while there are some fantastic initiatives that came out this summer, I still haven't seen any ads where someone's sitting at their desk by a window or driving in their car mm -hmm, or, mm -hmm. you know, walking to the bus stop. So yep. if you are yep. listening and lunch. you are doing marketing mm -hmm. for a sunscreen company, I'd love to see some of these kinds of advertisements. And yeah, it's so much so that in the online questionnaire that we have for our new MediSkin service, one of the questions we ask about sunscreen is, we have a multiple choice question asking, do you wear sunscreen every day or just when you go outside? 
because it's such a big issue that people think they're doing the right thing. And in actual fact, from an ageing-related perspective, you know, I'm not even touching on the sun cancer perspective. And that's, you know, obviously of, it's an incredibly important issue, much more so than ageing. But it's just something that people, it's a massive misconception. The other issue is moisturiser. The number of people who think, who don't pay any attention to moisturising their skin. A lot of attention to actives again, but not moisturising. And it's, you know, the one thing that will make the biggest difference to the way your skin looks and feels is moisturiser. I have to be with you on that because even if we look at, say, elderly patients who have, you know, skin breakdown and ulcerations, Uh a lot of this could just be really prevented by basic basic skincare. Yep, plain old moisturiser. So, So I often recommend for people a very plain basic cleanser a very plain, basic moisturiser. You don't need anything fancy to moisturise. A good, plain moisturiser will perform the right functions and a sunscreen. And once you've got that in place, then, you know, carefully selected actives that will target the concerns that that you want to rectify is the way to go. Great advice. You've probably got a little bit of money too. If you're not spending a lot of money on those other things, you've probably got a bit extra to spend on, you know, something like, some professional like a laser treatment or something like that as well which will also you know those kind of treatments in the right hands exceptional as well Mm. so i guess that sums up what i was going to ask you next is what's the most important products in a skincare regime yeah well we've done that covered that yeah Yeah. start from sunscreen and work down yeah absolutely Yeah. yeah Are there some specific things? I know obviously everyone's skin is different, but are there some specific things that are consistent with each individual as far as what you should be looking for in a simple cleanser, in a simple moisturiser? Sure. Look, again, it comes down to chemistry. A lot of these, from a consumer perspective, it's really about finding things that work with your budget, with your lifestyle, with your skin type. So understanding what type of skin you've got. I mean, I deal with people who are still using the same foamy gel cleanser at 50 that they used when they were 18. And, you know, age is not a skin type, but certainly your skin behaves differently, as you know, when you age. So you need to change things up a little bit from time to time. In general, I suggest to people to avoid foamy cleansers. That's That's not to say there aren't some really great foamy cleansers, but there's also still some foaming cleansers that use the types of surfactants, which are the chemicals that pick up the oily stuff on top of your skin that you want to get rid of, like the sebum, the makeup, sunscreen, moisturiser, all that stuff that's, and all the stuff that's stuck in that at the end of the day. There's still some, quite a few actually, cleansers that will also pick up the oily stuff that sits between the skin cells in the outer part of your skin and dry your skin right out. And so as a general rule, if you know somebody who's listening to this and not coming to see me and we're digging down into the types of surfactants in products, I tell people just, if you can, avoid some, avoid foaming cleansers. And it's a shame because they're convenient and they do work, they cleanse beautifully, but you need to know which, which ones are great and which ones will dry your skin out. And also, if your skin feels tight and dry afterwards and you can't, you know, you're desperate to get moisturiser onto it, that's probably a sign that there's too much cleansing going on. Yes, and that's something that some people often bring up, right? They think, oh, well, my skin feels clean after this. And it's like, yeah. well, does it feel clean or does it feel tight? 
and that's actually your skin you know all the beautiful sebum and oils and things have yeah. been completely stripped away that's not a yeah. feeling that we want after a cleanse definitely not definitely not if you're desperate to kind of get to the moisturizer that if you and of course squeaky clean is never a good thing and look this is all this is really very this is generalizing because there are some great foaming cleansers there's also certain skin types that benefit from getting rid of more sebum than others for want of a better way of saying that you know for example if you're younger and you've got oily skin you can tolerate things better than older people with you know those kind of skin barrier integrity issues it's very hard to generalize but in saying that that's why it's kind of a blanket thing of trying to avoid foaming cleanses and yeah so it's a, and then moisturizer it's really just a matter of finding a texture that suits you that suits the weather you live in you know if you live in melbourne you're going to want a completely different texture of moisturiser to somebody who lives in Darwin. You know, fits with the environment you live in, fits with your skin type, fits with your budget and your lifestyle. You know, if you're at the gym three times a day and you have to reapply moisturiser, wash your face and reapply moisturiser after all of those times, you're going to want a different kind of product to somebody who cleanses and moisturises in the morning and then leaves it all day. So it is very difficult to generalise. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Sorry about that. No, not at all. Well, it's just important to, I guess, reiterate that one size does not fit all what's yeah, different for Exactly. Me. And I think yeah. finding someone that you trust and just listening to that person, particularly if you listen to that person and you do what they say and your skin changes for the better, not for the worse, and giving things a, a few months before you make decisions about whether you trust that person or whether you move on to somebody else or move on to different products or whatever. I think that's really important. And that's a really difficult concept currently because most people, particularly the younger age group, will turn to social media before they will turn to an expert. And in skincare, that's problematic because this chopping and changing and seeing 20 different people and taking everybody's advice and it, for it not being personalised to you and to your needs and your skin and all of those things, I think you just end up in a bit of a pickle, really, a mm. big confused hamster wheel pickle. Absolutely. And just to dig into that a little bit deeper, so you mentioned earlier about the need to wait and you know see a, t a change mm. over time. Mm. What would be the timeline for someone to be expecting to see any changes in their skin? It totally depends on the concern that you're trying to deal with. For example, things like pigmentation, if you're going to try and deal with that from a topical perspective, so using creams to deal with that, if you're not seeing a change within you know, two to three months, then you've got a problem. They're not, whatever you're doing isn't working for you. In general, if you've got acne, you should expect to see a change within, you know, if, you're, if you're trying to treat that topically, you know, if, if you're still going in a month's time, and I say this to people, acne is one of those, it's a really difficult thing to treat. I only ever deal with people with mild to just moderate acne because it's a very difficult thing. And there are a lot of really fabulous prescription products from dermatologists that will fix things very quickly. But people battle on and try and treat it for years unsuccessfully and then deal with, you know, all the emotional issues and the self-esteem issues surrounding that. But then often acne scarring which takes years and is very expensive to fix. So I say to people when they come to see me, if it's mild and just moderate, 
I'll say, look, we'll, I'll give you some skincare things that, some, some skincare suggestions. If we get to three or four weeks down the track and there's not any, and there's no improvement, you're off to the dermatologist. You have to give things a period of time, but it, again, it depends on what you're dealing with. And something like aging related concerns and retinoic acid, that can take up to six months before you start to see. You will notice differences over that time, changes over time. Um, and you should notice a gradual improvement over time. But most people, they don't want the gradual improvement. They want, the, they want to look in the mirror and look 20 years younger. So that will happen. I'm not saying 20 years younger, but you know, six months down the track, you'll look in the mirror and go, I'm glad I did that. But it depends on how, what you're treating and how you're treating it, really. But you do want to give it some time. You can't expect to see a difference overnight. It, it just doesn't work that way. And what about that concept of it sometimes gets worse before it gets better? Yeah, that's a true thing. Uh, look, there's all this discussion about the difference between purging and a reaction. So purging is something that, you know, where people perhaps start a skincare routine and they get some additional breakouts. It's usually in response to breakouts. If you start a routine and you get some breakouts in areas that you've ordinarily had breakouts in the past and, you know, there's not that many of them and they kind of start to disappear over the time period that you've allowed yourself, say the next month, that's what I would consider a purge. If you suddenly start to get breakouts that where you've never had them before, if they're associated with swelling or itchiness or a red rash or heat or any of those kind of things, that's probably a reaction. And it's you want to discontinue the product or contact the person that you got the product off and say, look, this has happened. And there's a lot of people, not a lot of people, I know of people who will try and sell you something else or not do the right thing by people and tell them that, they're purging when in actual fact it's a reaction. Look, it's anything to do with breakouts is really a minefield. But it is true, particularly when you start with topical retinoids for treating acne and topical retinoids for treating aging, there is a period where things get worse before they get better. Sometimes. Not all the time, but sometimes. That's why it's handy to have someone you can talk to about it and say, hey, this is happening. What is it? Instead of kind of taking a photo of yourself and posting it to a Facebook group, you know, 50 people with their, you know, all varying degrees of skincare knowledge, you know, their kind of biases and their, you know, emotional filters and what have you give you advice. Go to the and reading that with your own emotional filters and your own biases, you know, it's, it just becomes a situation where the truth is perhaps not even in there at all. And I think, you know, sometimes people might go to these groups because of the fear of what it's going to cost to go see a professional, but yes, the yeah. time and energy mm. and money that you spend on products oh, that may have been oh, recommended, absolutely. Uh, you'd be much yeah. better off to go to the source from the beginning. Absolutely. And as I said previously, price is not an indicator of quality and people will buy multiple inexpensive and expensive products where one trip to a dermatologist or a facialist or a skincare expert and fixed and moved on is, you know, to my mind, it's money well spent. But, you know, of course, that's what I do for a living. So I'm always going to say that, aren't I? But it's unfortunately true that people, I hear the story over and over, people who've battled on for years with skin conditions. And I don't mean skin conditions as in medical conditions, like psoriasis and eczema and those kind of things. I don't deal with those. But things that they're trying to treat with their skin, taking advice from 20 different people, buying thousands of different products, spending an inordinate amount of money, when it's really, it, it could have been fixed quite easily and simply. You know, that's the world we live in. We live in a world where people will, I mean, people will turn to social media for health advice, not just skincare advice versus going to a GP. So we live in that world. 
And I think it's for, for skincare therapists and also for dermatologists and anybody in that kind of dermal health space or skincare space, it's important for us to maintain access to those people socially as well, a social media space, so that they can access us there too. Yeah, that's right. It's this one thing of because doctors and medical professionals can't just give uh, advice without a consultation, there's this thing of, well, if they're not as accessible, it means that it's easier just to go on to a Facebook group at 11 o'clock at night. Correct. But which is why I think the program that you're doing with Curate is so exciting because it does make it a lot more accessible to be able to see a professional. Yeah, I think it's time for people in this space to actually take skincare to the consumers and in a way that fits obviously with all the rules and regulations surrounding that for medical doctors. But I do think it's important to maintain, to be active in that social space so that people at least know there's alternatives, even if it doesn't, I mean, I don't give advice you know, I give very general advice. I don't give advice, individual advice online either because that's fraught with danger. And But certainly so that people know there's an alternative to what they think in terms of just putting their problem out there to the world and seeing what comes back to you. I just think that's important. And I think it's, it behoves anybody in that professional space to be online and accessible in some way, shape or form, certainly not giving one-on-one individual advice though. Mm, Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. So where can people find more about you and the work that you're doing? Oh, well, they could head to my website, which is a trove of fabulous things, I think. (laughs) But so I'm regularly, I do quite a lot of press. I feature quite a lot in the beauty press. So, and I, and all of those things are listed, you know, those, those articles are all accessible on my website and they're free. And they're again, you know, kind of a series of general information that people might find helpful. My Instagram, I do regular posts on different ingredients and formulations and skincare concerns and all kinds of stuff. So that's a useful place as well. I have a Facebook group that you can access through the Curate Facebook page. And all of these links are on the website that people can come to to talk to other people. But I also moderate that. So, you know, I can kind of steer people in the right direction without, again, giving one-on-one advice if there's things that are being said that are just inherently unsafe. That's probably it. Fantastic. Well, we'll make sure that all of those links are in the show notes. Yeah, thank you. Thank you. Appreciate that. But thank you for your time, Michelle. Lots of little bits of goals there and lots of practical advice. So it was um, fantastic to hear about your story and the things you're doing and and all the things that we can do to make sure that we're doing skincare right. Thank you for having me. I really appreciate uh, the opportunity to chat to you and it's been a pleasure to talk to you and happy to, to chat again anytime. My pleasure. Dr. Squires shared so much gold on ingredients, formulations, marketing strategies, and gave us some really good tips on how we can navigate the skincare stratosphere uh, and not be completely overwhelmed and confused. The three deeper than skin insights that stood out to me were, number one, we'll firstly just look at Dr. Squires' 
business model. I mean, have you ever been confused about what product to apply, when, and how much? She has created a fabulous solution for this. Teleconsults, online memberships to ask all your niggling questions, and pop-up clinics to complete a skin analysis with high-end technology. Applause, applause. I just absolutely love what she's done. She's found a niche and found a problem and offering a really easy um, but high-end solution. Number two, I really loved that we covered about uh, marketing and you know, some kind of strategies that we think sometimes might mislead clients. And I found that Dr. Squire's whole philosophy on everything, really, we could have talked for hours, was really refreshing. And she said that she doesn't think companies purposely mislead clients, Um, but it really is about what is right for one person's skin is not going to be right for someone else's skin. And she likes to practice what she calls evidence-based skincare choices versus hearsay-based skincare choices. So while uh, looking at testimonials and things are really good, um, that is a bit of a marketing strategy that can sometimes may confuse people. Although it is good to know from, you know, some person on the other side of the world that it's something may have helped with their breakouts, it may not necessarily be evidence-based. So look for more of those clinical studies that skincare ranges are doing if you are looking for some changes in your skin. And number three, this is a little bit of an insider information. When we first recorded this episode, it wasn't quite the time to announce that Dr. Squires has was about to launch a new venture because it hadn't happened yet. But I'll let you on an, a little secret. Curate MediSkin has now landed, and this is a boutique custom skincare service which offers personalized prescription treatments for aging skin, acne, pigmentation, and rosation. They use the power of telemedicine, and the doctors at Curate MediSkin create formulations specific to you that you cannot get off the shelf, and they offer Australia-wide delivery. I have an inkling this is going to be big really fast. Head to the show notes for a link. Thank you for joining me for another episode of the Heal Thy Skin podcast. If you enjoyed listening, take a screenshot while you're listening to the podcast and tag us on social media at dermhealth.co. Until next week, be skin powered.